0: our series in the Psalms by taking a look at Psalm 77, where we find God in the day of trouble. Starting at verse 1, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord, and in the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled I cannot speak. I considered the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever? And never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. And then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders, and you have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron this psalm is written by Asaph a thoughtful believer who is familiar with sadness and to follow him we the reader must at least be somewhat acquainted with the troubles of life the psalm is broken into four stanzas with the first stanza 1 through 3, being about Asaph's cry to God. The second stanza, verses 4 through 9, Asaph argues with God. And the third and fourth stanza, verses 10 through 20, Asaph remembers God's ways. First, let's look at Asaph's cry to God. Verse 1, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. Asaph directs his cries to God, not to his fellow men. He cries to God. His cries aren't secular, and furthermore, they're loud. It says he cries aloud, indicating his prayer is not silent. This is not meditation, but verbalization. He voices his cries out loud to God. He is putting words to his pain, and he has some level of confidence that God can't just ignore him, but will, in fact, hear him. Verse 2, "...in the day of my trouble I seek the Lord." In the night, my hand is outstretched without wearying, and my my soul refuses to be comforted. Throughout his troubles, Asaph is seeking the Lord. All day long, his soul is making diligent search for God, so much so that his search extends beyond the day into the night. And at night, he continues with outstretched hands in prayer. By day, he's urgently pleading for God. By night, he's unyieldingly seeking God in prayer. And yet, through all his tireless seeking, his soul is not comforted. Comfort that could be his is not because it's simply not palatable. He's like a nauseated man. And with his nausea, he refused the comfort of food or those things that during other seasons of life would offer him nourishment and comfort. But he refuses it because his soul is so nauseated and sick with despair. In fact, those things that used to bring him comfort in this moment only seem to agitate and make things worse. And we don't know exactly why. But if you've been through suffering, I'm sure you can relate. Have you ever had a nausea of your soul? that the food of God's word seems uncomforting. In fact, it seems to agitate you. We can guess why this may have been the case. We don't know. Maybe God's comfort seemed insufficient or trite or remote or impersonal or maybe it just kind of spoke to others but not to him. Have you been in that situation where people bring God's word of comfort and instead of comforting you, You're annoyed. (laughs) They say things like, well, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Trust him. Maybe Asaph is suspicious of the good news and he cannot be persuaded into peace. Maybe hope seems too dangerous a thing for him to possess because he's had hope before and it blew up in his face. We don't know why he refuses comfort, only that he does. And to top things off in verse 3, he says, When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. It's remarkable that Asaph doesn't mute his heartbreak. He He chooses to give voice to his frustrations and his complaints. And those unfamiliar with the Bible might be surprised with such raw honesty is on the edge of being rude before a holy God. How could that be included in the Bible? And yet, I repeat, he says, when I remember God, I moan. We must remember that Asaph is not an unbeliever. He's not an atheist. He's not a fool who says there's no God. He is a child of God. Now, I I tried to imagine if my child were to say to me, Dad, when I remember you, I moan. When I think about our relationship, my spirit faints. Those are hard words. Such words are understandable when spoken to a deadbeat dad. And I may not be the best dad, but I don't think I'm a deadbeat dad. And even when such words are spoken to an okay dad like myself, they seem grossly unfair, dishonoring, and rude. So how much more dishonoring and rude do they seem to be toward a perfectly loving and good father like our heavenly father. But here's my point. This is a child of God, a godly man who wrote Psalm 77, who seeks God tirelessly, but he has grown cynical and suspicious of his Lord. And if Asaph can become cynical and suspicious and despairing, who are we to think that under the right pressure we can't as well? Or maybe you are surprised because a mentor of yours who who provided you such encouragement and hope is in a a dark situation and seems to be sharing words like Asaph and it's causing you to panic. How does this all apply? Well, first, we need to guard ourselves against self-righteousness. If you have not yet felt the way Asaph feels, don't assume it's because you're made of tougher stuff than he is. Maybe it's just you haven't had the right pressures applied to your life. Maybe you've lived a charm life. If you have felt the way Asaph feels, know that you're not alone. This psalm is for you to show you the way forward and the abundant patience and mercy of our God. Maybe you have a Christian friend that you respect, someone who's mentored you, but they're in a bad spot and they refuse any comfort that you offer. This psalm would encourage you not to be surprised or panic over your concerns of your friend. Remain patient and hopeful. What is happening is not strange. Every child of God, save one, has a breaking point. And thankfully, that one child of God Who never broke abides in us by his spirit, and he is faithful. So, the first stanza, Asaph cries out to God, and his cries are raw and cynical. But notice, God does not allow him to stay there. The second stanza, Asaph starts to argue with himself. Verse 4 You hold my eyelids open? I am so troubled I cannot speak. Sleep is a great comfort, but it often escapes the fearful, and the sorrowful. To have this last comfort withheld is a horrifying reality for people who are already deprived of comfort. Yet at least, according to Asaph, God withholds even this last comfort. He says, you hold my eyelids open. I'm exhausted, God, because of you. And he goes on to say, I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Deep grief leaves us speechless. Like deep rivers, such grief often flows silently. It's often our small griefs that trickle as complaints flow from our mouths like shallow streams smacking against stones of discomfort or washing over pebbles of inconvenience. But deep grief often leaves us speechless but it's in our silence when we run out of words that God's grace runs deeper still. Grace often works most effectively when we don't know what else to say or have nothing left to say, for in that moment, we stop arguing with God. We truly cease and desist, and we begin to listen in new and fresh ways. And once we focus on listening to God and not ourselves, not our fears and our grievances, it changes things. We begin to take God's words more seriously than our fears and our worries. And this changes the way we argue with ourselves. No longer are we using our words to argue with God. Rather, we begin to use God's words to argue with ourselves. And this is what Asaph begins to do in verses 5 through 9. He argues with himself using God's word. Verse 5, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. He's reconsidering things again, going back to the days of old. Why? Well, his present pain not only had left him speechless, it was drowning out the voice of God. And so what does he do? He turns his attention from his pain to his God. Listen, unfortunately, pain can become an unwelcome and strange comforter. My roommate in college would often turn on music called screamo music. It sounds like screamo. (laughs) And he would often play it after he failed a test or had a big argument with his girlfriend, and he claimed that it helped him to vent his frustrations and to feel better, and it seemed to work at first, but over the long term, I I grew suspicious. It seemed to actually make things worse and agitate him, and it certainly gave me a headache whenever it played for more than five minutes. But it, it helped him to focus on his pain, and I think that's why things got worse, not better for my roommate. But here, Asaph turns his attention from his pain to his God. C.S. Spurgeon says it this way, It is our duty to search for comfort and not in sullen indolence yield to despair. And if there is no comfort in the present, then look to the past. And that's what he does in verse 6. Let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. See, rather than let himself fall to pieces, he lets himself remember. He lets himself meditate. Finnick O'Dare, the handsome victor from uh, from District 4 in the famous Hunger Games, reflects the cost of letting yourself fall to pieces without a fight. He warns our hero, Katniss Everdeen, with personal experience. He says, Katniss... It takes ten times as long to put yourself back together as it does to fall apart. The psalmist here is refusing to let himself fall into despair. And at the end of verse 6, he says, Then my spirit made diligent search. Turning from despair, the psalmist makes diligent search. He understood this duty required a, a no stone left unturned diligence. And so he asks question after question in verses 7 through 9. He searched not merely with his eyes and his heart and his body, but he says, my spirit made diligent search. This is no intellectual or theological logical or theoretical exercise. His heart is actively engaged in his search for truth. He wants to understand truth for himself and to understand his pain and his disappointment and his suffering in light of who God is and what God has said. And that is hard work. External religious acts are easy. To read a prayer attend church, listen to a sermon, sing a hymn. But spiritual searching is much harder. And maybe this explains why we so rarely bother with spiritual searching until we are desperate. Because it is so hard. It requires courage, determination, honesty, grit. Notice the nature of his questions. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? His questions are asked of God. He's seeking for God. He's searching to understand things from God's perspective. He investigates and searches and argues. And his questions are the necessary questions. The ones that have to be asked in order for truth to win out. And then, at the end of verse 9, he says, Selah. And Selah means rest. And this is a much-needed rest, for if you've ever had this type of spiritual striving, it's exhausting. But this rest can only be enjoyed by seekers of truth who argue for truth, not convenience. Servants of truth who seek to know the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And even that, if that truth humbles them or asks more of them than they know how to give, they rest in it. See, this rest cannot be obtained by self-seeking prosecutors who seek to justify themselves by the truth or merely to win their case. See, Asaph argues honestly, truthfully, courageously in the courtroom of his soul. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? And as he wrestles, he realizes, of course not. God is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He has, has his steadfast love forever ceased. I'm sure he realizes that if God were to cross-examine him, he'd say, consider the nature of your question, counselor. Steadfast love, by definition, never ceases. Are his promises at an end of all time? Absolutely not. Don't be ridiculous. His promises are yes and amen, even in the darkness, and we see that at the cross. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Well, God is not like a man that he should forget anything. He can no more forget to be gracious then he can forget himself or his son. Has he in anger shut up compassion, shut up his compassion? Asaph may have had reason to wonder before the cross, but we don't. The anger of God was released to Calvary. There's no more wrath remaining that can block the compassion of God toward us. In Christ, God's position toward us has changed forever. Forever. From a condemning judge to a loving father. So any anger is fatherly and full of compassion. See, now that Asaph has argued his case and stated his grievances and wrestled, he's discovered what God has said and he's satisfied. And so he doesn't need to drone on and on. So he simply says, Selah, and rests his case and submits to the verdict. So Asaph cries to God. Second, Asaph argues with himself. And third, Asaph remembers God's ways. Stanzas three and four have one focus, the mighty ways of God. Stanza three tells of the general acts of God's redemption for his people. Stanza four focuses on one specific act of redemption. Now, looking at the general acts of God, In stanza three, we realize that God is constantly active, even when we cannot see it. When it appears God is unconcerned or inactive, what does Asaph do? He admonishes himself to appeal to the times when God was very clearly active in years past. Verse 10, then I said, I will appeal to this. To the years of the right hand of the Most High, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember the wonders of old. See, if only we can recall God's mighty deeds from the past, we will soon have our minds full, even overwhelmed by God's blessings. There's too much to remember. Verse 11, his deeds, plural, they're many, not few. My wife and I treasure the rare but limited time that we get together after we put the kids to bed. That's mom and dad time. It's our time to catch up, it's our time to process the day together. And so we don't have much patience when one of our kids pops out of bed every 10 minutes complaining that they can't fall asleep. And so I've learned a little trick. I tell them that they cannot come back into our room until they've counted to a thousand by ones. Silently to themselves and guess what? They never return. Why? At first, counting to a thousand seems easy. But to do it by ones, 756, 757, 758, it's much more exhausting than any of us would imagine. How much more overwhelming and exhausting, is it for us to actually count the Lord's blessings? Lord, I I thank you for my orange juice this morning. I thank you for my stomach and my intestines that digest it, my mouth and teeth that chew it, my tongue that enjoys it, my blood that takes the nutrients to my brain so I can formulate this thought in this prayer. See, remembering God's deeds just from 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. exhausts us if we truly remember them all let alone the wonders of old. And so he goes from listing to pondering. Verse 12, I will ponder all your works and meditate on all your deeds. Your ways, O God, is holy. What God is like our God. See, God's blessings are not merely common. They're wonderful. And the psalmist realized he cannot list them all. And so he steps back and ponders and meditates and considers them all collectively from a wide-angled lens, and his conclusion is inescapable in verse 13. What God is like, our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. Verse 15, you with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. And at verse 14 and 15, Asaph gets personal. Yes, God makes his mighty deeds known to the nations in verse 14. Everyone knows something of God's mighty deeds through general revelation. We know that from Romans one twenty, where it states God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Everyone sees that. But the even more remarkable display of God's mighty deeds, the even more remarkable, remarkable than the billions of stars in the galaxies is how he redeems his people, how he notices them, he cares for them, he loves them, the children of Jacob and Joseph, to think the God of the universe notices them, notices you. See, God is not simply active in the universe. He is active in his people. This is no distant God of power. This is an intimate God of power and love, and presence, and grace. And he works his redemption in the lives of people like Jacob, second born, not particularly manly, not his father's favorite, and he knew it. He works powerfully in Jacob's life despite his shortcomings, and heartbreaks, and self-absorption, and hypocrisy. See, that is personal, lavish grace. And most of the time, Jacob couldn't see it. He works redemption in the life of men like Joseph, whose dreams only came true through betrayal, loss, and suffering. Asaph remembers God's ways, that his deeds are too many to count. They can only be pondered, that his mighty deeds are not simply universal, but they can be personally experienced by his people who ill deserve them, people who have a hard time to recognize them for what they were at the time they're poured out upon them. See, this is a God of grace. And while stanza moves, stanza three moves from general to personal, as it recalls God's general deeds, stanza four focuses on one specific mighty deed, the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. And the stanza ends rather abruptly, without explicit personal application. I think, because some applications are not only self-evident, but they hit us more poignantly when they're not spelled out, when they're not forced upon us, but we have to ponder them for ourselves. Verse 16, when the waters saw you, O oh God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid, indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightning lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. See, by recalling the Exodus, Asaph remembers that God's ways were are sometimes terrifying, as they no doubt were for the Israelites, fleeing Egypt. Can you imagine being pinned against the sea with no weapons, no defense, no way of escape? And now the Pharaoh is leading a legion of chariots to ruin your hope for a better life. No doubt the Israelites were terrified and wondered why they'd been led to such a place as this. If God were good and true to his promises. See, because the quickest way to the promised land would have been along the Mediterranean Sea, around the Dead Sea. Not further into the desert, not put into a place of no escape. How can this be God's way? And yet it was. God's way was not the safe and easy path. Around the sea, it was the terrifying and impossible path through the sea. And that meant, verse 17, thundering skies, dark clouds, trembling earth. And yet, that truly was God's way, even though his footprints were not yet seen. See, God was present like a shepherd, leading his flock through his under-shepherds, Moses and Aaron, who themselves were frail men of imperfect faith. And so the application, though unstated, is clear. Though you only see the storm and danger and disappointment in your life right now God is presently working his most powerful redemption Though you wish he would bring it by allowing you to go around the sea he's saying my ways through the sea And just because you cannot see his footprints or sense his present doesn't sense his presence doesn't mean he isn't actively working even now for your good, to lead you from enslavement to freedom, to lead you to life in a better land. For Asaph, the exodus was sufficient to restore his hope that God was with him, God was good, God would redeem, and all things would turn out well in the end. But dear Christian, we have a better event to look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Like the Exodus, the cross of Jesus Christ reminds us that God's way, it's not our way, the easy way. We think the best things happen by going around our troubles, not through them. And in the same way, we think the best things happen by avoiding pain and suffering and crosses. But God sent his own son To endure a cross, to despise its shame. Why? For the joy set before him, which was a better joy, and God's highest glory and our ultimate good was obtained through going through that sea. See, sometimes the best things, God's highest glory and our ultimate good can only be obtained through the trial you're going through through the trials I go through. And so in closing application, one for the suffering, the others for not suffering, but maybe trying to help their friends. If you are suffering deeply, if you're pinned up against the sea in an impossible place, in a desert wasteland, take comfort in you're crying out to God and you're arguing with yourself. God has not abandoned you. He will not smack you down. He did not smack Asaph down. Like the Israelites, he is with you. And I know you're terrified, but God is writing a great story just like he wrote a great story through the Exodus. He's simply not done writing the story. You're in the midst of a great story. You're just in the tragic chapters right now. So wait for the end of the story when he turns it on its head and brings about a glorious climax. Take comfort that God's way is through the storm and he will bring better glory, better joy, better things to you through it. Maybe you've lost a job, maybe you're going through a financial disaster, maybe you've been overlooked for promotion, maybe you've had a betrayed friendship, maybe you're going through a conflict in this church right now, maybe you're divorced or widowed. Whatever it is, God is with you through this storm. For those not suffering, have tender compassion. Don't overreact when others cry out in anger against God. Don't fear. Don't fix. Recognize how patient God is in grief. And pray. Pray for them. Let others argue with themselves. Assume it's happening among the godly. Allow space for it. God is at work through grief and disappointment and broken dreams. And he's always... a willing and patient as we argue with ourselves but he won't leave us there so recognize that this is okay pray for them to remember and trust God's ways and see God bring comfort let's pray thank you Lord for Asaph's psalm if we've lived much of life in a broken fallen world we can relate to his cries We can be so despairing that we refuse comfort because it nauseates us. We can moan at the thought of you. Oh, God, forgive us. Thank you for your patience as we argue with you and ourselves, as you silent us and show us that your grace runs deeper than our pain. Help us, Lord, to remember your ways, to remember your blessings that cannot be listed, only pondered, and help us to remember that your way is through the sea sometimes, not around it. To trust that you are with us. That you are writing a great story and your highest glory. And our greatest good is going to be accomplished through the sea. Give us this perspective. And give us patience and hope as we anticipate you to write the end of the story. In Jesus' name, amen.